Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. County supervisors in Fresno, Kern, and Riverside counties will no longer have a hand in drawing political lines. That's after Governor Newsom signed three bills transferring the power to citizen-led commissions. KVPR's Joshua Yeager reports. Supervisors in Kern and Fresno counties have come under fire for drawing district maps that critics argue fail to represent a population that is increasingly diverse. Assemblyman Rudy Salas of Bakersfield authored the Kern County bill. He says creating the 14-member commission is necessary to, quote, ensure that voters will choose their elected officials and not the other way around. But Kern County Supervisor David Couch has fired back, saying the move is politically motivated. I think it's being led by folks that are not getting the desired outcome that they want. The commission member's political affiliation will be proportional to the number of voters registered with each party in their respective counties. For the California Report, I'm Joshua Yeager in Fresno. And the Citizens Redistricting Commission will be formed following the 2030 census. In other news, Governor Gavin Newsom has signed emergency declarations for Madera, Modoc, and Siskiyou counties, all of which have been affected by recent wildfires. This will enable the counties to access resources from the state to help with cleanup and debris removal and assist in the recovery process. Meanwhile, crews are gaining the upper hand on the state's largest wildfire this year. The Mosquito Fire burning in El Dorado and Placer counties has burned 76,000 acres, but is now 47 percent contained. And thousands of people who had been evacuated have been allowed back in their homes. In California, we're used to home prices going one direction, up. But in recent months, the residential real estate market has cooled, with home prices falling and properties staying on the market longer. Most investors expect another three-quarter point interest rate hike from the Federal Reserve later today. For more on this story, I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, the California Report's Saul Gonzalez. Hey, Saul. Hey, Maddie. So here in California, a pretty cold blast of air has blown through what's usually red-hot residential real estate markets. Take this example. Property tracking firm DQ News says home sales in Southern California dropped 28% from August of last year to August of this year. And in recent months, home values have either stayed frozen or declined by 2 to 6%, depending on the area. UCLA real estate professor Eric Sussman says that in Los Angeles, changes like like this can be disorienting to real estate veterans. We definitely had a softening of the market, which is just shocking to most Los Angelinos who have been used to prices going up, up, and away. 
So what's creating the cooldown? Well, experts say it's rising mortgage rates. The recent spike in rates adds about $1,000 in monthly payments to a home that would go for about $740,000. But for those looking for a home, the lower asking prices now and the reduced frenzy in the market are also a welcome relief. The last one we looked at was it didn't at an open house in East LA over the weekend, where a Spanish-style bungalow was going for $850,000, I met Ashley Coley, who's looking for her first home. I've been told that we're in a better position as a buyer than it than we have would have been in the past couple of years. So that's good for me, I hope. You hope that's good for you? <laughs> I that, hope that's good for me, yeah. That this trend continues. Yeah, or I hope that, you know, I hope that it's not as competitive and um, that maybe even we'll see lower prices than we have. Ashley's friend and realtor, Rachel Stamen, then chimed in, arguing buyers have slightly more clout than sellers compared to the real estate market's recent past. Yeah, I, I feel extremely hopeful for, for buyers right now, feeling they have a little more like control of their own future. Before, it was like if, if we were working with Ashley, it was like a million dollars, you're getting a condo. Now, we're, we're looking at homes. But here's a reality check. Even with a decline in prices, many Californians are still locked out of the real estate market because of how much homes are still going for, especially when you add in those mortgage rate increases. Looking into his real estate market crystal ball, UCLA's Eric Sussman predicts modest home declines in the future, but not a free fall. It's just going to be a slowdown. I've told everyone if they're waiting for a collapse, they'll be waiting for Godot. That just is not going to happen this cycle as best that I can see. For many, that means the struggle to find an affordable place to buy and call home will go on for now. For the California Report, I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. In other housing news, this week the Newsom administration identified five state-owned properties that it hopes can be used for affordable housing. Cap Radio's Chris Nichols has that story. The sites include a commercial building in Midtown Sacramento, former state office buildings in Fresno and Covina, a Caltrans property in Oceanside, and land near the Atascadero State Hospital. The administration is looking for developers to build what it believes will be hundreds of new units of affordable housing on the properties. Three years ago, the governor signed an order requiring agencies to find excess property for this purpose. So far, the state has reached deals on 16 sites, creating a pipeline of more than 4,000 new homes, according to the administration. Newsom also signed a related bill. It requires the state to report to the legislature on its plans to transition underutilized state buildings into affordable housing. For the California Report, I'm Chris Nichols in Sacramento. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.com. 
org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Over the past 20 years, drinking water in California's Kern Valley State Prison and surrounding communities contained arsenic levels above the federal limit for years at a time. That's according to a new study by UC Berkeley. Jenny Rempel is a co-author of the study. After the MCL or the, the maximum contaminant level, the regulatory limit changed in 2006. It took six to seven years for arsenic treatment to come online in Delano and Kern Valley State Prison. And then it took even longer to get arsenic treatment in McFarland. Um, and Allensworth residents are still relying on you know, untreated blended water from their groundwater wells. So there's a, a long period of, of exposure uh, as uh, systems were waiting for a treatment to come online. That exposure can lead to health problems like diabetes, respiratory issues, and multiple forms of cancer. Co-author Alistair Cohen says these low-income communities are even further burdened by the structural makeup of the state's water system. Because funding for water treatment and supply provision and maintenance um, is typically expected to come primarily from residents, from, from those using the water, uh, all things being equal, water treatment utilities in lower-income rural areas are more likely to be out of compliance. The study recommends new and ongoing support from the state for water treatment facilities in these areas to meet drinking standards. And in other news, a library in San Francisco's Bayview-Hunters Point neighborhood is now home to California's first clean air center. The center opened on Tuesday and will offer people a place to escape bad air quality from wildfire smoke. In the coming weeks, more than 300 clean air centers are expected to be made available to the public in the Bay Area. Christina Chu is with the Bay Area Air Quality Resources Board. Through the Clean Air Centers program, it provides portable air cleaners or um, HVAC upgrades to like schools and um, libraries and other buildings that can serve the public when air quality is unhealthy um, due to wildfire smoke. $5 million in state funding has been allocated for the first phase of the Clean Air Centers, which will mostly be in the Bay Area, San Joaquin Valley, and along California's southern coast. And finally, California is one of 10 states that doesn't require schools to screen students for dyslexia. Educators say leaving learning disabilities unaddressed can overwhelm and often frustrate students, sometimes leading to behavioral problems down the road. As part of our ongoing series on dyslexia, KPCC's Robert Garova takes a look at some of the impacts undiagnosed and untreated dyslexia can have on young adults later in life. Sitting inside a coffee shop in South LA, 28-year-old Irving Alvarez tells me about when he started struggling in school. It was around the third grade, and he found it difficult processing combinations of letters and numbers that made math homework his worst enemy, and he would be punished time and time again for not keeping up with his assignments. They would put me in timeout inside the classroom, you know, they'll get my desk and they'll move it all the way to the corner. They'll be like, okay, well, we're going to finish your homework right here in this corner. And constantly I was getting bashed out, you know, for not being able to be at a standard of a cookie cutter. Alvarez says he would hurt not only for the punishments, but also for having to watch his mom do his homework because he didn't want him to get in trouble. He says he knew there was something different about his learning, but he didn't know how to explain it, and his teachers weren't much help. They would see it as a constant problem. They wouldn't see it as we need to find a solution to what's going on behind this or why is he not learning. These days, Alvarez works as a youth coordinator with the Brothers Sons Selves Coalition, which has the mission of ending the criminalization of young boys. 
At 21, Alvarez found himself incarcerated in the California state prison system, an outcome he in part traces back to his difficulties learning in school. Actually, being inside of prison, I talked to my counselor and my mental health specialist that I had in them, and they came to the conclusion that dyslexia is what's causing this. Alvarez's experience is common. There's a dearth of studies looking at dyslexia and its links with incarceration. A two-decade-old study of people incarcerated in Texas prisons found that roughly half were probably dyslexic. Kelly Rain Collin is a supervising advocate with L.A. County's Juvenile Mental Health Court. Collin works with youth caught up in the criminal justice system to get disabilities like dyslexia identified and individual learning plans set up to intervene. If the learning disability isn't effectively addressed, which is what we see very frequently, by junior high, these kids are starting to give up. They're starting to become truant. By high school, they're feeling like, why bother? Collins says school districts often make her work difficult by refusing to apply learning programs tailored for dyslexic students. She and her colleagues also have to work with students and their families to overcome the stigma associated with special education. Quite a few teachers discussed dyslexia was like the Easter Bunny or Santa. It was like either you believed in it or you didn't. Elementary school special needs coordinator Teresa Baldwin says her family calls her the dyslexic whisperer because she can easily spot the signs in people of any age. She had to fight to get support for her own dyslexic child, and in her work she regularly hears from teachers who have little to no training in identifying or addressing dyslexia. You end up with a lot of kids who either end up becoming the bully or the class clown because they have to emotionally compensate for being made to feel foolish and less than every day. Dyslexia is the nation's most common learning disability, affecting up to 20% of the population. Still, California is one of 10 states that doesn't require schools to screen for dyslexia. A 2018 law requires federal prisons to screen for dyslexia, but California prisons don't. That's something Marianne Wolf would like to see change. She's the director of UCLA's Center for Dyslexia. A great number of our incarcerated individuals first failed because they were called a failure and no one understood what to do about them. Wolf stresses that dyslexia should not be viewed as a curse, but rather a different brain organization that's highly beneficial if understood. Solutions for her are clear. Early assessment, early intervention, and educating our teachers. That will help us not have so many fall through the cracks. Back at the coffee shop in L.A., Alvarez tells me that's all something he wishes he would have had back when he was in school. One of the biggest things that I'll, I'll take from this is that I still haven't graduated high school. And I'm 28 right now. A lot of times, like, I see that we've been hurt so much over not being diagnosed, you know what I'm saying? Alvarez says he's still trying to find someone who can give him a formal diagnosis. And maybe he'll finally get that high school diploma. For the California Report, I'm Robert Garova in Los Angeles. And that's the California Report for Wednesday, September 21st. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Healthcare, where their greatest reward is a healthy patient. Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, 
whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.